Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. For over 50 years, FAU Harbor Branch has been in relentless pursuit of ocean science for a better world. Located in Fort Pierce, Florida, FAU Harbor Branch's cutting-edge research focuses on marine science, ecosystem conservation, aquaculture, the connection between ocean and human health, and technological innovation and national defense. During my time as part of the undergraduate Semester by the Sea program, I learned so much about the ocean and what it takes to become a good scientist. The programs and opportunities offered at FAU Harbor Branch have continued to swell since. To learn more, please visit fau.edu slash hboi. That's fau.edu slash hboi. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what did the conch say when he saw his picture on a flag? I feel so special. Did you hear about the conch that entered the race? He snailed it. For four decades, Dr. Megan Davis has been working with the iconic Queen Conch in Florida and all over the Caribbean. In today's episode, Megan shares how, at age 16, she knew she wanted to do conch aquaculture and how she's been at the forefront of conch science and aquaculture since. Megan shares how conch is being restored all over the Caribbean, some crazy facts about the iconic species, and what a conch pearl looks like. Her passion for these shelled creatures is contagious. You are in for a treat. Please enjoy. Megan, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. Thank you, Kara. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited to be here. So you study one of the most iconic shellfish, definitely in Florida and the Caribbean, maybe even worldwide, the queen conch. It's beautiful, right? It's pink. Everybody knows what a queen conch looks like. And if you don't, listeners, we're going to have pictures. So why the queen conch? What got you interested in? Yes, I I was first introduced to the queen conch when I would sail to the Bahamas with my family every summer. We lived in Miami at the time and I was in high school and I was introduced to the conch by the fishermen in the Bahamas. And they showed me, as you mentioned, this most beautiful shell. They showed us how to prepare it and how to take it out of the shell. And I thought, gosh, you know, with an animal so beautiful, so easy to catch, so delicious. I think that this species one day is going to need to be farmed and aquacultured. And so I was 16 at the time. And I decided at that moment, I was going to dedicate my life to becoming a conch farmer. That is really fascinating, because most 16 year olds don't have aquaculture. (laughs) on their brain? Did you grow up farming? Like, how did you come up with this idea of aquaculture at 16? Yes, you know, I don't think I actually knew what aquaculture was. um, But I knew that they needed to be grown. I mean, I knew, basically the idea because I was in a marine biology class at the time, and I was sort of learning things and aquaculture back then, in the 70s was just beginning, you know, it was just sort of a concept. I mean, it had been, uh, it's been around for a really long time, but in terms of providing the amount of seafood that it provides now, because it provides almost 50% of the seafood that we eat. So I, I think that I was thinking that there must be a way to grow these. And so culturing them, aquaculture, mariculture was certainly in my mind. And that really did start to take me on this path of starting to explore the species more and understanding what it would take to grow the conch. So you went into, I mean, college all the way to your PhD with the mindset, I'm going to study and grow queen (laughs) conch. Yes. So my undergraduate 
was studies was at Florida Institute of Technology. And at that time, they had a satellite campus in Jensen Beach. Mm -hmm. And it was a small campus and with an aquaculture lab and and classes. So I was getting exposed to it. And and I wrote my papers all on conch whenever I had a chance, you know, so you know, the business plan of, of growing conch in the islands. And so I would do that. But then after I graduated, I went down to the Turks and Caicos. It was a colleague who I studied with that she's from the Bahamas. And she, I said to her, you know, I want to be a conch farmer. Do you know anybody in the Caribbean? And she said, I have a colleague in the Turks and Caicos. And so that started the conversation um, for me to connect with the group that was actually working on a small conch, very, very small conch project um, in the Turks and Caicos. So I was able to, um, to get a position there to be able to study the conch. That was in 1981. And at that time, there were other conch, small conch farms that were starting, like research farms, one at University of Miami, one in Las Rocas, Venezuela, one in Belize, one in Puerto Rico. So it was like, it was, it was a pioneering time for learning about conch. And we were out there trying to discover what were the ways to grow conch. And so really, I didn't go on for my master's or my PhD until 10 years later. And I can certainly fill in that 10 years of what happened there, too. Yeah, I really like that story a lot that even though, I mean, you knew what you wanted to do, right? And it was a really specific topic, Queen Conk. And a lot of people kind of get pigeonholed in topics um, reverse. They do school and then they just kind of like, okay, well, I can get my master's or I can get my PhD studying this. And it may or may not something they're actually interested in. So I really love that you went out and got some real world hands-on experience doing what you wanted to do. And that evolved and that dictated what you, your studies in the future. Yeah, absolutely, Kara. So, I mean, you're primarily at this conch farm, right? During these 10 years in the Turks and Caicos. Yeah, so we started in this small laboratory on this island that was only a mile long by half a mile. So it was a, a private small island that we were on, and we were part of a nonprofit organization um, called Pride, the Foundation for Pride for Protection of Reefs and Islands for Degradation and Exploitation. Mm-hmm. And so I was working with a group of very like-minded um, people that were um, working with the, the local communities, um, w- you know, working with Kong, also doing gardening and then education and marine science work. So it was very, it was a very exciting time for, for me just graduating and going out into, um, into the real world, as we say. Mm-hmm. So, but about two or three years into that time, we uh, decided that it would be good to start a production size conch farm, like a commercial conch farm that it was looking like, like it was time to maybe scale up. And so um, I became a co-founder with my now husband and also um, our other partner. So the three of us were co-founders and I was the chief scientist. And here I was, I was only 23 and I was, um, you know, left in charge of designing and building and putting together um, the ideas and the plans and how we were going to grow conch at a commercial level. And then my husband, Gary Hodgkins, he was the operations manager. And then Chuck Hess, he was the CEO um, of the organization. And then we had, we had investors. So we developed this conch farm and we could grow about a million conch a year from that farm. And I trained the local people to work at the farm and to raise algae and to raise conch and all the different stages that were necessary. And so I worked there uh, until the end of the 1980s. And that's when I left after that. So it was, uh, it was definitely felt like pioneer days. And we had, you know, I would reach out to colleagues and others to sort of bring it all together. And it's still the base of all the work that I do today is, is the development of those technologies. And the application is used in my work uh, ever since. This is so fascinating. How do you grow 
punk. And this isn't mm-hmm. like a plant, right? This isn't like you <laughs> pop it in the ground, make sure it's got some water and sunlight. Like this is an animal that grows its own shell. Can imagine there's some nuance there. And you mentioned you grow the algae that feeds the conch. Could you explain what, how do you grow a conch and has it changed in, you know, the several decades that you've been doing this? Right. So it hasn't changed too much, actually. I mean, it's, it's still, we, we've certainly done refinements and we found ways to simplify it or to make it more elaborate depending on the situation. But basically we start with the eggs um, from the female and she lays eggs pretty much during throughout the Caribbean and Florida through the summer months. So starting when it starts to get warm, I always say around Easter time, she starts giving her eggs. She starts laying laying her eggs. (laughs) And so that's, you know, like March, April. And then she lays until about September, October. Some places it can be year round. We're finding that in Puerto Rico that, that, that some of the conch, depending on the populations will lay um, every, every month. Um, So they lay the eggs and then we collect a very small portion of her eggs because her eggs are half a million and so we don't need the whole eggs we just need a small portion in the wild less than one percent of those survive so when we bring in a small portion we improve survivorship quite quite highly and so we bring them in and then they incubate in an incubator with flow of water and they take four days to develop sometimes a little faster sometimes up to five days but pretty much average four days and they hatch at nine o'clock at night. And we've, we figured that out by going to the lab every, every hour and seeing when they hatch. And so um, consistently I've seen them hatch at nine o'clock at night um, in just about any country that we've worked in. That is so strange. (laughs) Well, I think, I think it's pretty amazing because, when yeah. you think about it, I think they hatch like at nighttime at the bottom of the ocean when there's less predators that are all up feeding, um, you know, feeding in the, the upper layers of the ocean. Mm-hmm. So that might be part of it. Like they're hatching under the, under the, the dark of the night. Right. And then they hatch um, in a synchronized way. They hatch out of their egg capsules and they are free swimming plankton, uh, zooplankton. Uh, or we call them villagers. They hatch with the same same shell. They keep their entire life. They have the velar lobes that go from two to four to six, and then they take anywhere from two to four weeks to go through their larval cycle into metamorphosis. So they start showing signs that they're ready for benthic life. Like they'll start doing this behavior called a swim crawl, and the, they sort of touch the bottom. They see if they like it, and then if they don't, they'll swim back up. So, but they need a cue, like they won't just metamorphose. So their cue in the wild is their, we call it a trophic cue or a food cue. And it's the algaes that are part of the seagrass blades that are growing on the outside called epiphytes. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, when they're exposed to that, they will go through metamorphosis. Mm. And this this amazing transformation. So are you ready for me to keep going? Yeah, I am. I'm really curious because, you know, we hear metamorphosis and everybody's going to be like butterfly, cocoon. Exactly. <laughs> so how does a conch go through metamorphosis? So they have to be morphologically and physiologically ready. So when they're a larvae, they're swimming with their lobes and their lobes are out and they have all these little cilia on their lobes and the cilia is... is helping for respiration and um, oxygenation and so wait what what is a what is a lobe is it just I mean it's like they're pre they're pre-shell kind of hanging out with them what is that and cilia is the little hairs that help bring in all their food yes yes Kara so okay so you have the tiny little shell yes and then from that shell you have the animal the conch mm-hmm. and the conch has these lobes that come out. So they're like appendages. And okay. sometimes they do kind of look like butterflies, except there's six of these lobes, three on one side and three on the other. Okay. And they're a, and as they get close to metamorphosis, they're very elongated, they're very elegant um, mm. lobes that swim that allow them to swim and move and and respire and take or breathe, you know, and 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 take in their food. So when they're a benthic animal, 
a snail crawling on the bottom, they need to feed in a different way. They're no longer going to have these lobes. So they need to have a proboscis, which is a snout that they use for grazing. And so they have to go that transition. And then because they've been breathing with their lobes, then they need to have gill. They have a gill with many filaments. So they have to have the gill ready. And then they also have to have their operculum, which is the claw or the trap door that closes them up tight to protect them. Mm-hmm. And so they have a soft one as a larvae, but they start to build a more chitinous one mm-hmm. as an animal. So we start to see these signs um, of the proboscis developing, of the gill filaments coming in, of the claw, the operculum starting. And we're like, okay, this and the swim crawl behavior. So we're like, okay, this conch is now ready for metamorphosis. And if you don't allow them to get ready for metamorphosis, they won't be successful. Like if you try to give them a cue when they're not ready, they, they'll just keep swimming. And so we're always timing this. And this is, this is actually one of my favorite parts of the biology of the species because it's such a big transformation from swimming to being a benthic snail. And so that's how metamorphosis happens. That's fascinating. It doesn't happen at 9 p.m. like the egg hatch out. There's not a specific time you have to actually watch the animals for this one. <laughs> that's, that's not so precise. However, we do give it time um, and we give it sort of a, like a subdued lighting because in the wild they would have gone into the seagrass meadows mm. and they would be sort of in a buried or, you know, kind of cryptic um, hiding in there. So no particular time that I'm aware of, but that's that's something to keep in mind for, for the future to look at. <laughs> okay. So this metamorphosis, do they, I mean, butterflies, I'm going off a of monarch and I, I imagine they're very similar. So these monarch butterflies, they get really big caterpillars and then they go into their little J shape and they make their cocoon and, you know, how, how long is it? A few weeks, two weeks. Um, then they pop out a butterfly. How is that similar or different in the metamorphosis of a conch? Yeah, well, it's similar that metamorphosis is a transformation. It's okay. a transition in a life stage. And so it, it's, it's similar that, that the word metamorphosis does refer to change mm-hmm. um, in the animals. And that's a very significant time for the butterfly to go from, you know, through the stages of caterpillar to, to a, um, to a flying butterfly. And so for the conch, you know, it's, it's a little bit different. They're, they're swimming out freely um, in the water column and then they become a benthic crawling snail. So after that, the conch really just stays benthic or in the substrate in the sand. Yeah. They're so they're super beneficial. It you mentioned that it's this algae on the seagrass that triggers this metamorphosis that makes them from this free swimming creature to a benthic snail. And they offer wonderful ecosystem services by cleaning the the seagrass basically from algae and it makes it easier for the seagrass to photosynthesize, which, you know, makes more seagrass, more beds for happier conch. It's a wonderful cycle. Mm-hmm. And they're also a snack for lots of different creatures, including loggerhead sea turtles and mm-hmm. rays, and I'm sure some crabs as well and other conchs. So they pro- they are absolutely a wonderful species. I saw in some of your research that you referred to the conch as a keystone species. Could you elaborate a little bit on what a keystone species is and how the conch fills that role? Yes, absolutely. So we call it a keystone herbivore, mm-hmm. meaning that it's one of the most important herbivores in the seagrass bed and so when you have a keystone species you have every species certainly has a niche in the ocean and so their niche makes them key to that habitat um and so there's many fish that are in that um in that there's you know the sharks are really important megafauna for the the whole ocean in terms of keeping it clean and some of the fish like the parafish are cleaning the corals. And there's so many examples of these keystone type of uh, animals in the ocean and certainly on land as well. So for the conch, you're absolutely right. It's playing this incredible role in the seagrass bed. So when the conch are fished and they're not in that particular seagrass bed, the seagrass 
ends up having a lot of epiphytes or filaments and things growing on it that can actually block that sunlight getting to the blades, which can slow down the seagrass. And so because, as you mentioned, the sunlight coming in provides a photosynthesis for the seagrasses to keep flourishing. The seagrasses are also known to be this amazing carbon sequestration habitat where it's absorbing all this um, wonderful carbon and certainly it uh, has lots of nutrients for the benthic organisms. So this, this very happy balance that goes on in the seagrass beds does get interrupted when you remove the conch. So that's actually part of the work that we do is to put the conch back in these seagrass beds. You have projects all over right now. I mean, they're in the, they're in the Caribbean. You have Puerto Rico, several places in the Bahamas, here in Florida, Turks and Caicos still. And I saw some of the headlines, you know, conquer dwindling, their numbers are dwindling. So how have you worked with the local communities to to bring back and stop this decline of the conch? Yeah, so part of our work is to establish restoration hatcheries. And so in Puerto Rico, as an example, we have a hatchery that is inside of a fishing association. So we're located in uh, Naguabo, down by the water near the, the Malacón. And we're with the Naguabo Fishing Association and also Conservation Conciencia, which is a local conservation organization. So the first thing we um, did was, um, I, I'm a research professor at, at Florida Atlantic University, Harbor Branch Oceanographic. And so we, we met with Conservation Conciencia with Raimundo Espinoza, the executive director, and also the president of the Fishing Association, Carlos Velasquez. And we sat together and we thought, you know, how can we work in partnership with, with scientists, conservationists, and fish, fisheries and fisher, fishers to all work together and to not feel, um, uh, not feel threatened, you know, to build trust that we were not here to change the fishing, um, but to, in fact, enhance the fishing. And so we always think about our work as making sure that it's a benefit for the sake of the species, for the sake of the ecosystem, meaning the seagrass, and then also for the people who depend depend on the fishery. So we look at this as a holistic approach, and the fishers get very involved in the project with us. They're the ones that know where the egg masses are. They're the ones that are out there on the sea and know where the the nursery beds are for the conch to, to be able to uh, release and put back in those habitats. So we have a hatchery there and we're growing small juvenile conch. And when they get large enough, about one year old, they'll be almost seven to eight centimeters or about three inches. And then we'll work with the fishers on restoring and replenishing different nursery areas. And so um, that's sort of the approach we take in all of the countries and the communities that we work in. So that was an example that I wanted to share with you all. I like that you're getting the local community involved, right? They're the, they're the stakeholders. There's the one, they're the ones that are impacted by conch. Uh, And something that really struck me that I don't think I realized how big of a fishery the conchs really are. I mean, they're number two in the Caribbean behind spiny lobster. I mean, here in Florida, it's not as big because they've been so protected for so long. Um, everybody knows what a conch looks like, but it's just, it, it's not something you see on a menu very often, but that's not the case when you go elsewhere in the Caribbean. And have fishing practices changed at all? Have the fishermen embraced the aquaculture aspect of it? Do they see the value in it? They definitely see the value in what it means to do restoration and what it also means to have protected areas for conch. And the more we share about the biology of the species, the more the fishers become aware of its life cycle. And then we also learn from the fishers what they're seeing out at sea in terms of the life cycle. So we might say something like, um, have you seen the breeding populations? And 
um, do, do you know that they need to be at a certain density in order to breed? And so we'll have discussions about that and we'll, we'll hear their insights about the different populations and how, for instance, how the fishers in Naguabo, Puerto Rico, they decide not to fish conch that are laying egg masses. And that was a decision that they made within their association that they would protect a female that was laying her eggs, which I think is wonderful um, way of conserving that, that female to allow her to lay. So in terms of the population of the conch, they need to be at a, at a density of a minimum of a hundred per hectare, or that's 50 per acre. They have, they have copulation. They have to find each other. They're not broadcast spawners. They don't just release their, their eggs and sperm into the water and allow it to mix like the oysters do. Mm-hmm. They have to come together. So in order for them to find each other, to find their mates, they have to be at a certain density. A, a, a typical unfished conch population might be as high as 1,000 or 2,000 conch per hectare. So you can see that the minimum is truly the minimum, but it, it does require more. So one of the things that we're doing is working with the fishers to be able to have some protected breeding areas and to actually put conch back into those areas. And we have done that project um, in the Bahamas um, with the, with the, the Bahamas national trust and, and local community and fishers and, and, and help to bring back a breeding population. So that's one way that the fishers can understand uh, why it's important to keep the moms and dads together so that they can have, um, you know, have more eggs essentially uh, in the wild. And so it, it functions really nicely. What impacts have you seen from your work? Are you able to go out and measure this or is it primarily what the fishermen see and what they're bringing back to you? Even though we've worked with conch for, or I've worked with conch for 40 years, most of that has been, you know, with the commercial enterprise but then also these smaller laboratories and smaller hatcheries and and research and it's really been in the last three years um, that we have turned our attention to restoration um, although we are very interested in growing conch for sustainable seafood as well and so we're now seeing the impact in terms of working with communities and talking about the conch and teaching ranching skills and looking at diversified livelihoods. So we pay the fishers that work with us a a stipend for collecting the egg masses or coming in and helping us in the hatchery or, or helping us with the fabrication of the facility. So they're very much part of it. Um, And so that's the initial impact that we're seeing is, is the education and understanding of the, of the life cycle and involving the fishers in the actual practices themselves. Going back to what we've seen in the seagrass beds, our work in 2019 in Great Ixuma with Catherine Booker, who's with the Bahamas National Trust, and also my graduate student at the time, Laura Isaac Newton, we reestablished a conch population into a marine protected area. And we saw firsthand what the conch were doing to clean up the seagrass beds. So we had them in a very, very large penned area. So we could see the inside and the outside. We could also see this migration of new, I, I don't know if you'd call them new, but we saw more species coming into the area with the conch there. We saw the turtles and the octopus and the rays and the barracudas. And it became sort of like this little family reunion for all the species to come in. And so that, that to us was, was really insightful and very exciting to see. And soon we'll have conch um, to be able to put out into the field. And then we'll start to see um, the impacts of, of the return of the conch also um, as juveniles into the nursery areas. Okay. So it's a story waiting to be told. There's more. There's more for sure. <laughs> so all the conch that you've helped raise over the last 40 years, where does it go? We started the Puerto Rico hatchery the year before the pandemic. So we just now have had a full year and a bit of operation. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a hatchery down in Curacao that's in its second year. And they've been growing conch as part of the sea aquarium um, in, on, in Curacao. And then the hatcheries um, in the Bahamas are just about to start up. Mm-hmm. So, and then we have um, a new project starting in Jamaica 
um, with the University of West Indies. Um, what you can see, Kara, is that we're starting to have these conch farms in different areas of the Caribbean. Yeah, I think that's really cool. So the ones that you're still growing conch at Harbor Branch, correct? Actually, now that we are so busy um, in the Caribbean, <laughs> we're not so much growing conch here ah, at Harbor Branch. Um, okay. So this is headquarters here for okay. for the team. Um, but really, the work is being done uh, down in the Caribbean. So there was a gap between, you know, when you started at Harbor Branch and doing conch research, and then you're creating these farmers, <laughs> these ranchettes, <laughs> which the idea of a conch corral just cracks me up. I'm just yes. like, tiny little snail guys cruising around in the seagrass beds with a corral cracks me up. So when you were raising conch in the past, were these just for commercial exports for food? So at the conch farm, it, it produced uh, conch up until about six to seven years ago. And at that time, there had been a number of different storms and hurricanes that had come through and done quite a bit of damage to the infrastructure there. There was a change in management and, and things um, were starting to change. So it, it ended up closing. But up until that time, they were operating um, from 1984 till what, just like the like 2016, 2017, somewhere in that range. So, and the pasture, uh, the grow out area where the corrals are, where the, the conch cowboys uh, ranch the <laughs> ranch the conch, cowboys and cowgirls, um, that could hold about a million conch. And so, and it was sold both locally and some was exported as well. A lot was sold locally. And then also some of the conch were sold as aquarium animals. Um, because they were just great grazers. So they, mm. it was also a, a market for that as well. And then some of the conch were released um, into the field. So that's the largest um, production facility that I've worked at. The other facilities that I've worked at have been more um, experimental, small scale to medium scale. And mm. so now what I'd say is we're working more at the uh, small to medium scale. And so that's the uh, and so really this technology is scalable um, mm-hmm. in terms of we also work with some uh, researchers in St. Eustatius who has what we call a benchtop hatchery where you're raising conch in beakers. And so really it can be anything from beakers to large, like 500 or 200 to 500 gallon tanks, you know, so you've got sort of the range there. It's so cool. So I do want to touch on, I feel like I could talk about, talk conch for a while and I know you definitely could (laughs) but I really wanted to touch on something that you are growing at Harbor Branch and that's the sea vegetables which is something I've talked a little bit about on the show before and it's always in the perspective of cold water kelp and that is not what you grow which I love um it's you've got your sea lettuce and the grassalaria and the sea purslane and the sea asparagus so cool what what got you into sea vegetables Seems, I mean, you know, it's kind of along the same vein as kelp or excuse me, as conch, but not quite. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I've actually had a love for seaweeds, which okay. are also known as sea vegetables. For probably 30 years, I've been eating seaweeds um, for so long. And I just love their, you know, nutrition benefit. And it's Wait, low okay, on- So how did you how did you start? How did you start being like, I'm going to eat the seaweeds? Because not many people want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I've just always been really interested in, in healthy eating. Mm-hmm. And so I was introduced to seaweed 30 years ago by you know, different groups that I would cook with. And at the time, there was you know, there were places uh, certainly overseas in Asia that were producing the seaweeds, but also the, like a couple of places in Maine were, were producing mm-hmm. them. There weren't as many varieties as there mm-hmm. are now in the market. And when I say varieties, I mean, they've all been there, these seaweeds. So, you know, there's so many varieties now that are um, that are available. And I, I don't know if I've tried them all, but I've eaten a wide range of seaweeds in different dishes. When I started working with my colleagues here at Harbor Branch, there's a group of us 
um, led by Dr. Paul Wells uh, at Harbor Ranch here. And we're running what we call an IMTA system. It's an integrated multi-trophic aquaculture system. Trophic meaning different levels of the food web. And so when I started to see um, Dennis Hanasak's work with the seaweeds, and then um, Paul and some of the other colleagues were starting to dabble with the uh, halophyte plants. And I thought, oh gosh, this is really this is really cool, you know, to be able to grow these succulent saltwater plants with the roots in the saltwater, but the mm-hmm. tops were out and they're all edible. And so we now grow four different species um, of these halophyte salt-loving plants that are local to Florida. They're also found in other um, the eastern seaboard up the up in the United States. Some are found on the West Coast. They're found actually around the world, really, when you think about it. Europe is really big into salicornia, which is also known as samphire or sea asparagus. So it was just a natural for me to sort of gravitate to um, wanting to work with a, with a plant species that was edible. Yeah. How is it different than working with the conch? Significant, right? Animal Significantly, yeah, yeah. Like you can, you don't have to feed them. <laughs> they're getting, they're getting all the nutrients from the fish that's in our IMTA system, and you know they're they're pretty independent. <laughs> so <laughs> I can go away for for a week or so and uh, know that they'll still be growing there. I, I do have a graduate student now that that's uh, starting her work on it, and then also. Um, a research associate who's been working with me. So we, I, I tend to like to go out and see them every day. Um, I was just out there this morning and they're, they're growing nicely. We are looking at the seasonal aspects of it. You know, what time of year they grow best. Some species grow better in the summer versus the fall and winter. And some species grow better in sand versus uh, floating raft systems or the hydroponic systems. So so we're also sort of discovering that and we transfer the technology. That's what we do here at Harbor Branch. We work on projects in aquaculture and we transfer that technology to other people to be able to, you know, start up businesses. So what happens with all the sea vegetables that you grow? Well, we had a, a mega harvest. Um, when was that? Uh, I think, oh, that was the beginning of July. We had so much product that we had grown and it was like, it turned out to be like almost 500 pounds. And so <laughs> we invited, um, so one of the things we do is we harvest it and we weigh it. And then we also figure out what the edible portions are. Cause we like mm-hmm. to know, you know, sort of like how much, how much of that plant can you eat? And most of it is anywhere from 50 to 75% um, you can eat. Um, so what we did is we invited the Harbor Branch community here There's over 200 people that work here. And we said, Hey, come on down. Well, um, we're harvesting today. Come pick up your sea vegetables. We'll share some recipes with you. And so, so some of it got um, taken by the, by the employees and, and here and students. Um, and then the other, we just really put into a, an area where we could let it replant itself. Because so, it's great as a restoration plant as well. Yeah, it's very prolific. <laughs> <laughs> yes, seagrass provides wonderful ecosystem services. <laughs> yeah. I love that it's good to eat. I haven't tried any of the species that you grow, so I'm like really okay. curious about it. Yeah, we'll have to get you some to try for sure. What, what's your favorite recipe out of for the species that you grow? What's your favorite recipe? Probably one of my favorites because I, I love to taste it when it's when it's in its raw form. So um, I like to add it to cucumber, tomato, avocado salad with lemon juice and olive oil. And you don't have to add salt because you already have the salt and the crunch of the sea vegetable. Mm, and that's any of them? Any of them will go in that recipe. Okay. And then I, I have other recipes, but you asked me yeah. for one favorite and that always comes to the top. And that's a favorite. <laughs> Very, very cool. So I want to touch a little bit. I watched a couple of your talks through Harbor Branch and you kept bringing up the license plate grant and how it's provided a lot of funding. So I wanted to bring that up here. A lot of people see the vanity plates and they're like, oh, it's so pretty. But the the money that 
you spend for that extra prettiness actually goes and provides impacts on research like what Megan does. So I think that's amazing. What are some of the other programs um, that the license plate grant funds or how has it impacted your research? Right. So we have, um, we're very fortunate. We have four license plates and the Mm -hmm. one that we call the clownfish license plate is the one where the funding comes directly to our work in aquaculture. And it does, it does cover the the research that we do in the IMTA system, so the sea vegetable work and and all the other aspects of that of of the IMTA because there's the fish, there's the shrimp, there's the uh, seaweeds, and sometimes we're growing sponges and also sea urchins and sea cucumbers. So you can see that there's um, a number of species and many, many of the faculty work on that project together. So that's, mm-hmm. that's where the majority of the funding goes to help support that, that um, program and that, that research. And then we also have the plates, the, um, we have one that has a shark on it and that helps to support the health of the Indian river lagoon, the monitor mm-hmm. monitoring work, um, the remote monitoring that anybody can pull up on the internet and see what the health of the lagoon is in terms of its temperature and, um, uh, nutrient levels and things like that, um, and and also freshwater, saltwater uh, levels, um, and seagrass work mm-hmm. as well. The other two plates uh, are the marine mammal ones, and they help to support the marine mammal work that's done in Florida with the dolphins and the whales. And so a lot of that is there's some citizen science work, there's some photo identification work, and also working with the stranding networks um, and then quite a bit of research also uh, related to the health of the animals in the the dolphin and the whales the health of them as well those pretty license plates making an impact look at that yes yes absolutely <laughs> thanks for bringing those up yeah something else speaking of pretty something else that struck me I don't know why I never thought of it but conks make pearls and you figured out how to have how to have them make pearls, and they still live. What does a conch pearl look like? How do you how did how does a conch make a pearl? Yes, the conch makes the most beautiful pearl. When you look at the pink color of the inside of the shell, they make these amazing pearls that are that pink color. But they actually came come in a range of colors. You might find some that are more on the white side or the light pink side or even orange and beige. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have what's very characteristic of a conch pearl. They have these flames that you can see inside. So it's almost iridescent, sort of like an opal would be. And so in the wild, it's one pearl for every 10,000 conch. So they're pretty rare when you think about it. And then it's usually one of those, um, it's usually one in a million that are really like top, top quality. And so they do have a, they do have a marketplace and a strong value in the marketplace, especially as the fisheries has been depleted in some areas, there's, there's less and less conch pearls available. Hmm. So my colleague, um, Hector Cosa Samuel and I back in, uh, 2005 and six, um, decided that we would work on conch pearl culture and it had been tried um, many times for like 25, 35 years and really nobody had come up with a reliable method. And Hector came with knowledge about oyster pearl culture, which Mm -hmm. is very, very well known and where most of the pearls come from are from oyster farms, Um, beautiful range of pearls as well in terms of, colors so we did develop and patent this um this technology um and we're able to grow about 200 pearls using that technology and now we're talking with some groups in the caribbean about possibly starting a a conch pearl farm very cool so if you want to get a conch pearl like how do you even get a conch pearl well there are some jewelers that have them. And so I can certainly make some connections. Um, (laughs) You got to know a good jeweler. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's, you know, when you're in the island sometimes. um, So it's, it's not commonplace for sure. You know, it's not everywhere, but 
but there are ways to get them. You know, I see them for sale on Instagram and on, on the website and things like that. But there are a couple of fine jewelers that I know have um, some beautiful conch pearls. Very cool. And how does the conch actually make the pearl? Can you explain a little bit of the bio? Yeah. So, so all of these mollusks um, make a pearl if they get an irritant and the irritant usually ends up being in their mantle and the mantle is what forms the shell. Mm -hmm. And so it might be like, it might be like a little worm might come in and bite the mantle of the conch or it might nick it on something as it's walk leaping across the ocean bottom or it might get like because it's in the sand all the time it might get like a little piece of sand lodged in there so it Mm -hmm. is an irritant inside of the mantle area and then what happens is if it can't get rid of that irritant it builds this like little pearl sack around it or excuse me a mantle around Mm -hmm. it which turns into the pearl sack and then it starts producing this pearl which is nice and round and smooth and no longer an irritant for the animal. It's absolutely fascinating how the animal can do that. Just incredible. It really is. That's super cool. And this, and they are gorgeous. You have a photo. I don't know if it's on YouTube or on the website, but I was like, that is a cool mm-hmm. looking pearl. That's yeah. awesome. Awesome. So at the end of each episode, I have a series of questions that I like to ask. Oh, I feel like I might know the answer to the first one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is your favorite sea creature and why? (laughs) Well, I'm really going to have to stick with the queen conch. (laughs) (laughs) I fell in love with it at 16 and I'm still in love with it. It's very cool. They're beautiful. They really are. Yeah. It's an amazing animal. You know, it's shell, it's home, it's, the animal itself is so incredible with its eyes and its proboscis and the, just the way it moves. And it's just a, a very special, very special animal. Yeah, absolutely. What does the ocean mean to you? Yes, you know, life as we know it on this planet Earth would not be here without the ocean. The ocean plays such a huge critical role in all the processes um, between the land and the sea with its biological, chemical, physical processes. Um, that's what makes the earth what it is today. So the ocean is, is so important from, from that aspect. And then from more of a society aspect, it's, it's so important for like the gateway of supplies across the world with the ships, mm-hmm. shipping and, also, um, certainly recreationally with diving and with, with sports um, on the ocean, the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, there are healthy seafood choices from the ocean. Yeah, the ocean, when you think of the ocean, you also think of sort of like a peace and tranquility of the ocean. And I shouldn't forget this, but the ocean provides us 50% of the air that we breathe from all those mm-hmm. microalgae and, and the, the seaweeds that we talked about. So the ocean yeah. Wow, we just wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the ocean. We wouldn't. (laughs) This is off of my regularly scheduled questions at the end of the episode. I had a marine science teacher in high school that I loved, and I still talk to her to this day. She's still one of my very favorite teachers. And she had said many years ago that if she didn't go into teaching, it was going to be dolphin research. And if it wasn't dolphin research then it was going to be conch research because at the end of the day, at least you could eat your work. So my question for you is, do you eat your work? (laughs) So when I first started working with conch, one of the many reasons to work with conch is because it is so delicious. Yeah, if I want to eat it, I better grow it. And so over the years, I've certainly eaten a fair bit of conch. These days, I don't eat as much. It's I've become so intimate with the species over the years that I know too much about the the species. So it's it's on a rare occasion that I would have treat myself to one of the conch as as a meal. I could see that. You developed a relationship. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects up to three, what would you use the money for? Yes, I know exactly how I would use that money. We are on a mission to have a conch farm in every Caribbean country. 
Mm-hmm. And there are over 36 countries and territories um, in the Caribbean region. So we have developed recently a mobile Queen Conch Lab hatchery. And we have one of them in the Bahamas now. And we're looking to have two to three more of them, uh, one in Jamaica, um, a couple in Puerto Rico. And so the way I see it is that if we could have a conch farm in every Caribbean country, it would really help the longevity of the species um, for the future generations. So that's, that's how I would, that's how I and we, the team and the partners would use that blank check. I like it. All the conch farms for everybody. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) All the conch in the world. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be an amazing day out in the fields or just the world came together and is very serendipitous, or it could be a day where things happened and it makes a really great story now. You know, I think one of my favorite stories to tell about is what it's like to be that conch farmer. When I first moved to the Turks and Caicos, and I lived on this small island that I mentioned, Pine Key, that's a mile by half a mile. And I lived in a tent and I lived in a tent for two years and the tent was solar run and it had an outside kitchen and I would grow sprouts and I would have this tent. The tent was 200, 200 square feet. So it wasn't like a tiny tent, but it had enough room to, um, to comfortably live for a couple of years. It was more outdoor living for sure. So Part because there really wasn't housing available, so this was like a nice alternative. And so I did that um, for two years, and then to follow on from that, when we moved to Providentialis, I ended up having a wooden car. And so that was the other part of sort of the story that you just have these um, I don't know how to say it, but it's like unusual out of the ordinary type of things that you do when you live in the islands um, mm-hmm. that become part of what it's like to live in and do field work and to be um, in the islands. So I share those two. Yeah, those are great. How did a wooden car run? <laughs> so as you know, in the islands and even in Florida, the salt water is like really hard on cars and these were some little citrones that had been brought down to the Turks and Caicos and pretty much their bodies had rusted away but the frames were still good so the basic frames so it got a wooden frame and I I have to tell you this story because (laughs) I took the wooden car to the airport to pick up my mom and dad they had come to visit (laughs) did you warn them well, I sort of said, you know, I'm coming to pick you up at the airport. <laughs> and then they said, okay, so so they saw the car that I came to pick them up on. And my dad said, well, where's the safety belt? And so this was an open air convertible wooden car, which had lawn furniture cushions to sit on. And it had a rope for a seatbelt. And so <laughs> I don't, I think they ended up taking a taxi after that. <laughs> They, they weren't down for that kind of island living. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Things that we do, right? It's wonderful. Exactly. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation topic to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? Yeah, there's, there's so many good conservation measures. Um, I think the thing that comes to mind for me, because I do work so much with um, with mollusks, gastropods, and shells, that I think probably an important message to get out there is to don't don't take shells that have a live animal in them. Mm-hmm. And if the shell is empty, make sure that there's no hitchhikers on the back of the shells because sometimes like little limpids or barnacles or things like that might be growing on them and using the substrate for home. Or sometimes there's a little hermit crab inside Mm -hmm. and they're also using it as a home. So it's really important when shell collecting to keep those in mind. And then also if you're buying shells at a shell shop, you you really need to make sure that you understand the source of those shells and where they came from. And just, just take some time to get to know 
to know that about um, about shell collecting. And then for the conch, if you're in the islands and you're deciding to collect conch to make a meal, it's really important to follow the local regulations. Like so, we mentioned earlier that Florida has a ban on fishing conch, so you can't you can't take any uh, live conch shell or conch there. Uh, you can take empty conch shells, but no live conch, or else you'll get fined. And then so many other countries have regulations. They might have like a closed season, or they might have definitely a size of the conch uh, with the lip thickness. So it's really important to understand the regulations and where your seafood is coming from um, in terms of of what you're eating and collecting. So thank you for that opportunity to to share those messages. Yeah. Yeah, source, source, right? It's so important. Mm-hmm. I want to go back for a second. You mentioned, you know, knowing how shells and shell shops are found or how they're, how they end up on the shelf. What would be an okay source in your opinion? For me, I just avoid it completely. It just doesn't, it's not worth it. And I usually leave most shells in the ocean, but if somebody's like desperate, what is just desperately wants a shell? What is an okay source? Yeah, so really, that's a difficult thing sometimes to find out where these shells came from. Mm-hmm. If you know that there's a fisheries like the conch fisheries or the clam or oyster fisheries, or there's a fisheries um, in other countries, and the shell becomes a byproduct. Mm then that's a great shell, Mm. you know, to purchase because you know that the shell got on that shell shelf because it was a byproduct. Mm. And then, of course, if you're on the beach and you're collecting shells in the sand, you know, and they're not underwater, they're going to be fine to collect, except sometimes at like extreme low tides, you might have stranded shells, um, you know, with the animal in it. That happens in Florida a lot with the, the fighting conch and some of the cockles and things like that. But there's there's lots of opportunity. Of course, not everybody has that opportunity to go to the beach um, and collect their own shells. So it's it's a it's a tricky thing, and it is good to do the homework ahead of time. Yeah, thank you. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and your work, where's the best place to do so? Yeah, so we have an active Instagram site, uh, mm-hmm. Queen Conk Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also on LinkedIn, Queen Conk Lab. Uh, we have a website, conchaquaculture.org. And then uh, you can also contact me by, by email um, at mdavy 105 at fau.edu. And we're on the Harbor Ranch website, so you'd be able to find us. Um, we'd love to share. We welcome comments and collaborations and partnerships. Perfect. And I'll put a link to everything we chatted about today in the show notes as well. And I definitely recommend the Instagram. It's beautiful. It's full of beautiful pictures of conks. Actually, one more question before we sign off. You have, you sent me a profile picture, which is a wonderful shot of you. What is in the background? Is this at one of the hatcheries? Are you building one of the hatcheries? (laughs) Yes, yes. So that is in Puerto Rico. Okay. And behind me is the new, we call it an aquaponic system. Mm-hmm. And we're going to grow sea vegetables, conch, and lobsters, and hopefully even seaweeds in there. So that's our new system that's um, being put together. So when I go down to Puerto Rico, I spend time with the, the staff and contracting crew. And we're putting that system together. We hope to have water in it um, in the not too near future or I should say we hope to have water in it in the very near future <laughs> exciting very cool well thank you so much for being on the show today I really enjoyed chatting with you thank you so much Kara it's been a real pleasure as well thank you for the opportunity this episode is brought to you by Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute For over 50 years, FAU Harbor Branch has been in relentless pursuit of ocean science for a better world. Located in Fort Pierce, Florida, FAU Harbor Branch's cutting-edge research focuses on marine science, ecosystem conservation, aquaculture, the connection between ocean and human health, and technological innovation, 
and national defense. During my time as part of the undergraduate Semester by the Sea program, I learned so much about the ocean and what it takes to become a good scientist. The programs and opportunities offered at FAU Harbor Branch have continued to swell since. To learn more, please visit fau.edu slash hboi. That's fau.edu slash hboi. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.